Welcome live from Jerusalem at uh, our regular weekly webinar. ICJ webinar is a series of online transmissions from Jerusalem covering uh, many different uh, subjects and many different types of uh, programs. Uh, just in the past two weeks, those of you who were watching, you saw that we started a new series uh, looking at the Bible uh, in Genesis and uh, talking about the life of Abraham. Uh, we are building that uh, program on the basis of the weekly readings, uh, which are read in the synagogues uh, all around the world, about Ashok. And we took also at some New Testament scriptures, which are relevant. And this discussion with the President Jürgen Wieler is going to continue next week. But uh, we are interrupting the series uh, today because we have another important uh, anniversary coming up next week. And that's why we're going to look at the United Nations and the relation to Israel. The, the main reason is that on the 29th of November next week, uh, we will mark 75th anniversary of an important UN vote for the partition of Palestine. This was the vote where uh, the creation of two states was envisioned. And on the basis of that vote, David Ben-Gurion on the 14th of May the next year uh, declared the independence of the state of Israel. Now, uh, we will start with a historical look how that voting came into about, uh, into, into being, and how uh, Christians from different countries played an important role in that. This is part of our uh, understanding of how what is called Christian Zionism can actually uh, mark some successes in, in this uh, diplomatic or political realm. And then we are going to move to a very hot uh, current topic, namely how the relationship uh, of the many different bodies at the United Nations towards Israel has developed and changed. And uh, so we will hear how it looks like. And, what we could possibly do uh, about it. So let me welcome our two panelists today. Uh, we have here Georg Capen, Executive Director of the American Jewish International Relations Institute, which is an affiliate of the Knight Reed International. Georg, it's great to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. So Georg will talk about this uh, current aspect of our subject today. And uh, before him, uh, we will hear from my colleague, Vice President at the ICJ, David Parsons, uh, uh, international senior spokesman, who has just come back, by the way, from a long trip to Africa. It's good to see you, David, that you came whole and uh, healthy, and uh, it's uh, great to have you here on the program today. So welcome, and you can start uh, with your part of the story. Thanks, uh, Mormir. It's good to be back. Uh, God is doing good things in Africa, but uh, we've come back to this uh, really important moment in Israel uh, where uh, next week is the 75th, uh, next Tuesday, the 75th anniversary of the UN partition plan voted on on 29 November 1947. And this, you know, sets the stage for the 75th anniversary of Israel's rebirth as a nation come May of next year, an important milestone, something we celebrate. And we should be celebrating here on the 29th of November next week, 
but somehow the Palestinians over the years have managed to turn it into almost a day of mourning and a day of protest against Israel and a day where every year they bring up a whole raft of anti-Israel resolutions at the United Nations. It's a, a day to bash Israel at the UN. It's a shame that they've just distorted history and changed it into this. And especially a shame when you consider, you know, there's significant Christian remnants, Christian communities in a lot of countries that are voting for certain resolutions bashing Israel every year, and we should be making a difference there. And especially when you consider the unique Christian role, which um, uh, a couple Christian figures played in the passage of the UN partition plan in 1947. And I just want to take a couple minutes to talk about that before we start uh, uh, hearing from uh, my friend Gil Capen from my days of working in, in the US Congress when he was there working on uh, the Middle East uh, subcommittee in the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And it's always good to see Gil. Uh, but uh, if you recall that 75 years ago, uh, the British had been here for about 30 years during the Mandate era, but the Arabs and Jews were fighting over the land already, and they, they finally threw up their hands and said the, the, uh, the British Mandate over Palestine, it's unworkable, we can't keep the peace. That was in March of 47, and they sort of uh, punted the ball over to the UN and said the UN was brand new. They said, do something about it. By the time the UN voted for partition, the British wanted back in to protect their interests in the Suez Canal, in the railway line, the oil lines coming up from um, uh, the, the Arabian Peninsula for other reasons. Uh, and they tried to undermine what the UN was doing. But for the first time, there were several committees that had come to study the, the conflict and the troubles in Palestine. Uh, before this, some were American British committees, and uh, they weren't so fair and impartial. This was the first sort of objective look at, at the conflict over the land here and trying to decide what to do about it. And uh, as they came here, uh, the thinking was several of the key members, of, there were 13, uh, I think it was 13 members or 11 members on the UN Special Committee on Palestine, UNSCOP, and several of them were British Commonwealth countries, and the fear was they were going to sort of lead the thinking of the committee to sort of hand it back to Britain in some continuing role or, or something. And there wasn't a whole lot of support at first for the, uh, the idea of a, of a Jewish state, helping create a Jewish state here. But as the committee arrived in the summer of 47, you had this saga of the, uh, the Exodus 47 ship. It was one of the many ships trying to bring Jewish refugees who had survived the Holocaust in Europe, survived World War II there. They were in uh, displaced persons camps. They were refugees, many of them without shoes, without proper clothing, hungry and all. And they were coming on ships that were trying to, to break through the British uh, blockade and reach the shores of Palestine. Many of them would beach themselves and the people would swim for shore. It was really desperate times. And the underground uh, Haganah 
had actually, uh, this Exodus 47 ship had 4,500 Jewish refugees from camps in Italy and France, somewhere uh, in, in, from those areas. And they had packed them onto this ship, but they had gone to the U.S. and found a Methodist pastor, Reverend John Stanley Graul, to volunteer. They talked him into volunteering. He was pro-Zionist. He'd been working for the uh, Zionist movement there in the U.S. And they said, let's put you on that ship so that if something happens to it, if it gets attacked by the British like these other ships, uh, you're an American citizen, you're not Jewish, you can be an impartial witness to what happens. So he signed on as like a cook or something. He signed on as part of the crew of the ship, and he witnessed the British attack the ship. And uh, when they took control of it, actually there were two British frigates or ships, um, warships that went across on each side of the Exodus. It was an old uh, passenger ferry. They used to run the Chesapeake Bay, shallow waters from Norfolk area, Hampton Roads up to Baltimore and back. And they tried to crush the sides of it. It was an old ship, you know, and tried to crush it. Can you believe it? With 4,500 Jewish refugees, he's sitting there watching it. When they uh, finally took control of the ship, the British took it to Haifa port. All the Jews were interned and were going to be sent back to Cyprus. But they they say his passport, he's an American, he's not Jewish. They say, oh, my goodness, we, you know, we can't put him in a prison, uh, in, a, in a camp, an internment camp. So they put him in a hotel, but put him under house arrest. Well, they snuck him out that night, the Jewish underground, took him to Jerusalem, where this UNSCOP committee was taking testimony in the YMCA auditorium in West Jerusalem. And he testified before the committee how the British soldiers with guns and clubs boarded this ship and were beating up young Jewish boys who only had potatoes and canned goods to fight with and really roughed them up, beat them and and uh, how they tried to crush the ship. And the whole saga of the Exodus, how it was attacked offshore, how everyone was put in camps in Cyprus and sent back to Europe. There was reporting on it by the international media that started to turn the, uh, the thinking of the UNSCOP committee that this, for a lot of people, this was a life and death situation. And John Stanley Grohl's testimony, his presence on that ship and his testimony was very influential in turning the committee to the decision of the, the majority view was we, we need a, a Jewish and a Palestinian state there. And he, he actually is buried in the, in the Missionary Alliance uh, Cemetery on Emek Rephaim here in Jerusalem, sort of an honor that he was so important. He's buried here in Jerusalem. And another guy that was important at this moment, another Christian, was Reverend William Hall from Canada. His father was a prominent attorney who knew Justice Ivan Rand, who was the um, the Canadian member of the UNSCOP committee, he was a member of the Canadian Supreme Court. And, and this way, way, Reverend William Hall, he had lived here for about 10 years, saw what was going on in the land, and had dinner at the YMCA one night on the balcony there 
with Justice Rand and explained the conflict, what was happening here to him. And Rand was considered like the conscience of the committee because Canada was a member of the British Commonwealth still, he was influential and he turned against the British, said they had broken their mandate promise to build a Jewish state. They had limited immigration right when it, they needed it the most to save Jews from the menace of Hitler and the Nazis. They uh, put a strict quota on land uh, purchases by Jews for about 10 years that prevented the Jews from owning more property, more Jews from getting in. And he said it was time to get the British out. So Reverend William Hall and his influence, Reverend John Stanley uh, Graul, and then a third guy, a third Christian who was very important, was a member of the committee himself, the Guatemalan ambassador, Jorge uh, Garcia Granados was his name. And he um, uh, wrote a book later called The Birth of Israel. I think it's one of the important books that from the de those days of how when they visited Tel Aviv and saw what the Jews had built in only about 30 some years here in the land, a thriving city, he said this, this Jew a Jewish state can prosper here. We should give them a chance. And he was also an influential member of the committee, a Christian who was a Zionist, who convinced many on the rest of the committee, we got to give the Jews a chance to build their state. And it's an interesting little footnote of history that he was, you know, part of the diplomatic corps for Guatemala uh, as a, an ambassador who was a member of the Sunscop committee uh, um, six months later. When Israel, when Ben Gurion declared the state of Israel, the Arabs at the UN had called an emergency station trying to stop what they knew was about to happen. Ben Gurion announcing the state, and there was a lot of debate and such, but all of a sudden things fell quiet because Ben Gurion had declared the state. So the session is basically obsolete, it's over. Uh, and the U.S. ambassador goes up to the podium a couple minutes later and says, we recognize the provisional government of the new state of Israel. And uh, Ambassador Granados was now Guatemala's ambassador to UN, and he rose and was the second, became the second country, uh, him going to the, um, the podium on his own authority. He, they became the second country to recognize the new state of Israel. I know many say the Soviets were. They were important vote at the time to because they thought that Israel would turn Bolshevik, pro-Bolshevik for, for them, but they didn't. They became a Western-style democracy, but Guatemala was the second uh, country to recognize Israel because of this Christian diplomat who had a heart for Israel. So those three figures were very important in this moment of the UN partition plan, which paved the way for the rebirth of Israel uh, just six months later. But now the shame is that this day when we should celebrate, it's been turn, turned into a day of protest and mourning against uh, Israel, mourning for the Palestinians, a day to bash Israel at the UN. And we're really glad to have Gil Capen with us to talk more about that and how we can turn this around into a day to really celebrate Israel's rebirth. Thank you, David.
just uh, going back uh, for a moment to that vote on the 29th of November, 1947. Um, I have the facts here. 33 countries voted in favor of the resolution. Uh, 13 were against, 10 abstentions and one absent. So they got the majority they needed. And when I look at the countries, I see uh, with some interest that many of those countries that voted in favor were actually from Latin America. We have Bolivia, yes. Brazil, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, Guatemala, Haiti, Nicaragua, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay, and Venezuela. Just imagine all those nations were in favor of the Jewish state back then. And uh, this is uh, quite interesting how things changed uh, throughout the history. And as you say, unfortunately today, the United Nations has really turned that anniversary and the, the Palestinian activists have turned it into a bashing day against Israel. And it would be very interesting to see how the voting patterns have changed over the years. And I guess that Gil has uh, some information on that. And also I would like to ask you to, to give it as your perspective as because you are very much involved, you know what is going on in the United States. And the question is, what can we as Christians who uh, want to make our voice heard in the governments and in, in our countries, what can we actually do uh, in order to uh, turn the tide and uh, have uh, more nations which would vote for Israel and not for these anti-Israeli uh, resolutions today. But Gil, the floor is yours. Uh, you are muted. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, it's great to be with you. It's an honor to be with you, uh, David, my old friend, my old valiant friend for many, many years. Uh, and Moimer, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, it's uh, Thanksgiving Day here in the United States. So it's important to uh, be thankful for, for the many, many things that God has given us. And I think that the Jewish people and the state of Israel are thankful for the support over the years and to this day of Christians. And I always say, I don't know where Israel would be without its Christian friends. And you guys are right at the front line, right in the holy city. And uh, I have a lot of appreciation for all of you. Uh, I listened with, with great interest to what both of you said, and, and there's a lot to unpack here. So Let's start with, uh, uh, David, your excellent uh, historical background. Indeed, November 29th is an important date in Israel's history. It's the day where at the United Nations, uh, the partition resolution was voted, giving the international imprimatur, legal imprimatur to Israel's establishment. Of course, Zionism existed for hundreds and, and thousands of years before that, and the yearning of the Jewish people uh, is really the basis of the creation of Israel. But in the modern day, uh, the rebirth of Israel was given legitimacy, international legitimacy on that November 29th. And as you so correctly stated, David, unfortunately, November 29th at the UN has become a black day in terms of defamation of Israel. And uh, Moimer, you correctly pointed to the overwhelming Latin American support uh, for Israel at the very beginning, at the partition resolution. 
course, at that time, there were really no independent African states. So Latin American uh, countries were definitely represented, and, and I think almost all of them voted on behalf of uh, statehood for Israel for the partition. Over the years, and David correctly pointed to the fact that uh, the USSR was an early supporter, they supported partition, a uh, famous speech, uh, I think, by Andre Gromyko at the UN uh, endorsing the creation of Israel. And they did indeed hope that Israel would become an ally of the communist world, would become a Bolshevik state, a Marxist state, and that's not what happened. So they turned against Israel with a vengeance and became the ringleaders of the anti-Israel propaganda op apparatus around the world. And uh, the UN started to become a focus of this anti-Israel activity. The uh, turning point, I think, occurred in the 1970s, when the UN really started aggressively uh, getting involved in a negative way in the Middle East. And th this type of activity has contributed nothing, of course, to peace in the Middle East. If you look at all the positive developments, the Camp David Accords, uh, running through the Abraham Accords, the UN really wasn't involved. And the fact that the UN is a uh, center, especially on November 29th every year of anti-Israel activity is unfortunately a uh, continuation of a very negative trend. The Soviet Union is gone, but this is continuing uh, to take place. So what happened in the 70s is the communist bloc led by the Soviet Union and Cuba allied with the Islamic bloc, the uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation. I think at that time it was called the Organization of Islamic States. And at that time, Gaddafi had a lot of influence and he and Castro basically got together and uh, implemented this anti-Israel agenda that took force and incredibly continues to this day. So I always thought that November 29th is a bad day for them to be bashing Israel because it reminds people that on November 29th, they rejected the partition resolution. There could have been a Palestinian state. Back then they weren't calling it Palestinian. There could have been an Arab state in 1948 and ever since then. And the fact that it, there isn't really begs the question, what are they really after? Well, of course we know they are mostly interested in, in abolishing Israel. They think the creation of Israel was uh, a terrible thing, an abomination, and they are trying to undo it. In the 70s, the infamous Zionism is racism was passed, actually November 1975, on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, of all things. Uh, they passed the Zionism is racism resolution, this infamous act. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the great ambassador, called it an infamous act and said the United States will never acquiesce uh, in, in its implementation. Um, what is less known is that the same day that Zionism is racism was passed, uh, the UN created two institutions, the Palestinian Division and the Palestinian Committee. And in 1991, when under the George H.W. Bush administration, the United States led the way in pushing for the abolishment of the Zionism is racism resolution, they left intact this infrastructure. I think it was an oversight because I think at that time, the United States had a lot of diplomatic clout and it was a real full court press um, 
starting with the president, uh, pressuring countries to, to vote to repeal it. And indeed, it was repealed overwhelmingly. But this Palestinian division and the Palestinian committee continue to operate. And basically what they do is they serve as a focus of anti-Israel activity, support for BDS, uh, defamation of Israel, the creation of a false image of Israel as an apartheid state, uh, and uh, really doing the institutional work of, of the anti-Israel political warfare around the world. Of course, there are other things, unfortunately, at the UN, in Geneva, for example, the UN Human Rights uh, uh, Council, and now we have this uh, commission of inquiry that was set up. So there's mischief all along the way. But what has been permanent since 1975 is these two institutions, the Palestinian Division, the Palestinian Committee. They receive, unfortunately, overwhelming support. The reason they have to be voted on every year, now every two years, because in, in 2020, they received a two-year mandate, is they have budgets. They actually are allocated money and I see here on the screen, you can see these are the official names of these institutions, the, the Palestinian Committee and the Palestinian Division. And um, originally they were getting, there was only three countries I think in the world that were uh, voting against, the United States, Israel, and maybe one of the Pacific Island states. Over time, the support for these institutions has eroded, especially over the last 10 years as more countries become aware of uh, the nefarious activities of these institutions. Uh, but we still have a long way to go. Last time, uh, the Palestinian division received 82 affirmative votes and the Palestinian committee received, I think, 92. Uh, we're trying to work towards getting those numbers down. And eventually, if we can get them below two thirds of the yeses and nos, then uh, we'll have a case to say they should be eliminated. Uh, the United States, it has to be said, has always opposed uh, these institutions uh, under administrations from both parties, by the way, and lists them uh, on a small annual list of important resolutions at the UN. Uh, but I think more can be done. Um, more can be done by uh, uh, friends of Israel, to press countries that are voting for this, to educate them uh, as to what the nature of these activities are. And uh, hopefully we can uh, eventually close them down because uh, there's not only uh, no reason for them to exist, but they actually do harm. They uh, hurt the chances for peace. They don't help the Palestinians one iota. It's, it's simply uh, propaganda, support for uh, activities like BDS, and really nothing positive comes out of it. Uh, so unfortunately, we have uh, next week another vote coming up. Uh, we're hoping to see some more improvement, um, but uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you, you have about that. Well, thank you, Gil. That's uh, very important. Uh, before we move to questions, uh, David, uh, do you want to add something on that? <clears throat> well, I... Um... Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's a shame that it, it got overlooked by uh, President uh, George Bush in 1991 after as they're coming out of the Gulf War and trying to prepare for the Madrid Peace Conference in October 1991, that in order for the U.S. to go forward with that, they demanded that the U.N. 
repeal the UN is, uh, the uh, Zionism is racism resolution, but somehow it got overlooked that within the secretariat of the UN, under the general secretary of the UN's office, you have these this permanent propaganda machine being paid for by all the countries around the world to churn out, uh, you know, propaganda against Israel. And it really, I think, Gil, you hit it that it was the Soviets who really taught the Palestinians how to talk about inalienable rights and all talking in Western terms that are going to appeal to a Western audience, but undermine Israel's legitimacy. But I I think it's also, it's not only anti-Israel, anti-Zionism propaganda, it's actually anti-Semitic stuff that our nations are being, pay, are paying the UN Secretary General's office to churn this out day after day. Yeah, I think uh, that's, first of all, absolutely true. Uh, and let me also uh, make the point that when when the Zionism is Racism resolution was repealed in 1991, uh, many African countries, even some that had voted in favor of the original resolution, uh, voted to repeal or abstained on that resolution. And Africa has become very, very important in this battleground. First of all, in the 70s, as we all remember, as we all know, uh, the Arab League pressured many African countries that had very good relations with Israel at that time uh, Israel was doing a lot to help those countries, doing a lot of development assistance in these newly emerging independent countries of Africa who looked to Israel uh, as a role model and as a big brother in terms of their own development. And, and the relations were really, really uh, positive, uh, beautiful relationships. And you just returning from Africa, you know how important uh, those relationships are. Uh, there's still a long way to go, but starting in the 90s, African countries started coming back to uh, restoring diplomatic relations with Israel, and that uh, diplomatic effort was was early on in, in that uh, uh, restoration of good relations between Israel and Africa, and in terms of uh, doing work on these resolutions, Africa's extremely important, first of all, because there are many African countries. Uh, close to uh, 50, uh, not including the Arab League. Uh, so that's about a fourth of the entire United Nations right there. So there's a lot of votes. But also, morally speaking, I think it's very important to get the Africans to uh, support Israel. Of course, we have this effort at the AU for Israeli observer sat status. That's also part of this. Um, but at the UN, Unfortunately, their voting pattern was set in the 70s by this Soviet uh, Islamic cooperation effort. Uh, and it's held to a certain extent. It's eroded, but it's still, there's still this, this perceived alliance uh, that the uh, African countries have, this third word mentality that, uh, that uh, took hold in the 70s. It's kind of preposterous that it still holds today, but I think there's a lot of African countries who feel like there's this consensus position, which there isn't. And just to, to point out one example of, of the erosion of this and, and how we're on a positive trend, uh, about 10 years ago, around 2010, 2011, more than half of the 
African Union countries were voting in favor of these two resolutions. Now it's less than half. Uh, it's down to it's it, it went from 33 countries to 24 countries. So we still need to uh, to do some work there because uh, none of them are voting against it, except for Liberia has now voted uh, no on one uh, of the resolution. So we need to really credit them for that. But uh, we need to get Rwanda and Ghana and Kenya and Uganda, Togo, countries that have friendly relations with Israel, but they need to start showing it at the UN. And I think once the ice is broken, I think it'll be easier uh, to continue to get other countries. But Africa's extremely important. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Gil, because we also have uh, many offices in different African countries, and in certain cases, we have access to parliaments or governments or presidents. So this would really uh, be uh, something very high on our agenda. And you are right, uh, times have changed. The, uh, the, uh, the Islamic states uh, that used to pressure Sub-Saharan Africa to go against Israel, but look at what's going on. We have Abraham Accords, we have several Arab countries which already made peace with Israel and others still under the radar, but the, the relationships are uh, quite clearly uh, going in a positive direction. So there should be no argument why Africans, if Arabs are making peace with Israel, why Africans shouldn't improve the relationships. And I believe also that the fact that Israel has re uh, regained the uh, observer status at the African Union is a significant you know, signal, even though there were pressures against that. So far, the voting was, was uh, upheld. Uh, so we do see this dynamic, but my question would be, um, what are some of the talking points that we could use uh, when trying to convince the respective governments, especially in Africa, that they should take another look at the voting pattern? I happen to uh, have been uh, having dinner a few weeks ago with a foreign minister of a, of a significant African country. And when I told him about this, he was surprised, which I think is not an uncommon uh, thing. Uh, they don't know what their own ambassadors are doing at the UN. It's kind of a, a, an inertia type thing. Mm -hmm. These things are going on for years. So the ambassador says, well, how did we vote last year? I'm gonna vote the same way. or there's still some peer pressure, maybe some more nefarious types of pressure going on at the UN. And, but the ambassadors are generally on their own unless they receive instructions from home. So this foreign minister said, you let me know. And he gave me his cell phone number. You let me know when these votes are up so I can instruct my ambassador. Now we'll see if it actually happens, but I'll certainly remind him this week. Um, but I think and I will share with you a, a one pager that, that we've done uh, analyzing the activities of these two institutions and you can distribute it as you see fit. But I think the main thing is, uh, well, I would say two things. Number one, these are institutions that are a waste of money. They achieve nothing whatsoever. They've been around now for 40 years. It's preposterous in this day and age that they're still continuing using uh, the money of the member states of the UN, mainly US taxpayers, frankly speaking, uh, to undertake these types of negative activities, which do nothing. It's not a humanitarian organization. They are completely anomalous within the UN system. 
is Division for Palestinian Rights. There is no other division that is named after a people or a country. You have the division for Latin America or the division for uh, Europe, and then you have some uh, functional division, division for humanitarian affairs and so forth, and then the division for Palestinian rights. It's ridiculous. And the same thing with the Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, or a third institution that I haven't mentioned because they're not up for a vote this year, the Special Committee to Investigate Israeli Human Rights Practices. Again, no other country has the honor of a committee devoted to it. But interestingly enough, in the history of the UN, there was one other country that had a similar special committee, and that was a part of Africa. And it had the same exact name, the Special Committee to Investigate South African Human Rights Practices. So it was obvious that the Special Committee on Israel was set up to parallel South Africa and to create the impression that Israel is an apartheid state. And again, that's where Africa comes in. Because if you convince the African countries that Israel is an apartheid state, of course they'll be uh, opposed to it. Why would they support an apartheid state? So I think part of the challenge is to educate people. First of all, you guys are doing it every day to, uh, to show the world the true face of Israel. What is Israel really about? It's, it's a constant struggle because the resources are limited. There's a lot of disinformation out there, but you, know, you guys are doing a really great job uh, uh, to change a lot of minds uh, for the better and to educate Christians and other people around the world about Israel. Uh, I would also say that, um, as you pointed out, Moimer, so correctly, in a day where we have the Abraham Accords, where we have Azerbaijan opening an embassy in Israel, this 100% Muslim country, a Shiite Muslim country, less opening an embassy, it's preposterous for countries to be voting for institutions which basically negate Israel's existence. One of the uh, underlying uh, facets of the uh, Committee on the Exercise of the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People is a definition of those inalienable rights. And it's spelled out in their original charter and it's on their website. And one of those inalienable rights is the so-called right of return, which is not a legal right whatsoever. Of course, as we know, there have been refugee situations all over the world. There still are. There's no such thing as a right of return. You know, you have Germans who were expelled from Poland. You know, there's no right of return for Germans. World War II, you had massive uh, population exchanges. You know, in Asia, we've seen this. Uh, the 48 war was imposed on Israel. These refugees were created. Of course, there were Jewish refugees also from Arab states that were absorbed into Israel. But this committee and UNRWA and other UN institutions continue to talk about this right of return, which if you look at it in an objective way, is really a recipe for the destruction of Israel. Because of course, no Israeli government would ever uh, uh, go along with that. But if if Israel was somehow, God forbid, forced to accept five, six million refugees, it would change the character of Israel and, and Israel would no longer exist as a Jewish state. And that's really what these institutions are calling for. So I think pointing that out 
and saying, mm -hmm. look what you're voting for. This is what you you're voting for what you think is an innocuous sounding uh, office, Palestinian committee, the Palestinian division, but really they're working to undermine Israel. And I don't think a lot of the countries that are voting for these institutions mean to do so. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I'd say that the, you know, the PLO has turned, the, the writer turned not only an enable right, uh, but uh, a sacred right that no one can can uh, dispose of or compromise on it, a holy right. It's quite uh, a maximalist position they've taken on it. Um, look, I, I think in both Latin America and Africa and, and in some Asian countries as well, there's been tremendous growth in the evangelical churches and they are um, starting to mature politically in some of these countries to where, say, in Brazil, they helped elect um, uh, a president, Bolsonaro, for, you know, one term. He just lost. But I think some of the evangelical votes split on him. Some of the media turned people against him. But he was very pro-Israel. And I noticed in the voting, Brazil voted against the, these resolutions uh, last year. And uh, in, in Latin America, this Ambassador Granados, who recognized Israel, was part of UNSCOP. He's actually respected all through Latin American world as a great diplomat. And he sort of represented the view back then. These Latin American countries had a very favorable view of Israel as a developing country like them, but one that was making it. It was like a model for a young democracy that was progressing and making it into the developed world. And they looked at it and said, you know, it's it's even a model for us. And with the, the growth of the evangelical churches, we're hoping many of these votes continue to start turning in Israel's favor, not only on these resolutions elsewhere. In Africa, much the same. The the evangelical vote is growing, say in Nigeria, it's it's uh, about a third of the population is now evangelical Christians, and they're having influence. They elected this uh, good luck Jonathan a few years ago, who helped block a UN Pal a Palestinian state in the UN Security Council, and we were involved in his decision on that. Uh, in East Africa, we there should be more influence, but the body, the evangelicals, they are sort of, they're still maturing politically. They have to fight corruption in their countries. That's a high priority for them. But most of them want uh, their their nations to move their embassies into Jerusalem. And, and But this voting at the UN, it is something that happens in a diplomatic bubble that most people don't know about. Even the foreign minister that you met with, he doesn't know how they're voting. The president of the country doesn't know. And, and those diplomats at the UN, they're going, uh, I remember um, uh, Dory Gold, who used to be UN, the Israel's ambassador to UN, he said, look, a lot of these guys, they're going to a cocktail party that night. Uh, with other diplomats, and they don't want to be laughed at like the only country that voted uh, with Israel, like Micronesia. You know, it's sort of the the little world that they're in there at the UN, that little bubble. They 
they they don't want to be the laughing stock in in the social circles there, and so they just keep voting that same pattern. And something has to break through that. I know a lot of these countries in Africa, Mormir can vouch for this. If Israel would would share more of its technology with these African countries and and really reach out to them like they did under Goromair in the 50s and 60s, you would see a real change that if Israel itself were to invest or cooperate with the US or Europe and in investing in Africa more, that it has to break and over override, say, the Chinese influence in Africa right now to really turn these votes for Israel, get them to move their embassies to Jerusalem, some of the things that we're all hoping for. Yeah, and uh, you are right that that's uh, a lot of truth in the fact that these uh, members of government, foreign ministers, uh, actually do not know what's going on uh, at the UN. And th this could be one point which we might try to break into by uh, uh, making them aware that we are following that. Uh, which leads me to the question, Gil, can you help us find a, a simple page where people could easily find the voting record on those resolutions? Do you have something like that? We certainly do. Um, but I, I was struck by uh, what uh, David was just talking about. It's very interesting. Our organization was founded by uh, Ambassador Richard Shifter, who was a legendary American diplomat. He was the deputy ambassador at the UN under Jean Kirkpatrick, great ambassador. And he was the US representative at the UN Human Rights Commission, among other uh, diplomatic assignments. He was a Holocaust survivor who fought with the Ritchie boys, a uh, legendary American uh, army intelligence unit in World War II. Um, and he, in his time at the UN, realized that there were a lot of shenanigans going on at the UN. And he thought he, his background was in, in politics. He was a lawyer and he was very active politically. And he understood that the UN is, a, is like a parliament. It's like the US Congress. And you really have to look at votes one by one. So he felt that not enough was being done and more could be done to whip for votes, not just on Israel, but across the board. Because if you look at voting coincidence, uh, with the United States. Most of the countries that we have good relations with, we give a lot of foreign assistance to, they vote against us at the UN all the time. And Israel is part of that picture. And again, this dates back to the 70s, that antagonistic uh, attitude that was uh, set up by the Soviet Union against the United States and its allies. Uh, but uh, if you go country by country, and again, it's not about just these votes, we want to see these relationships flourish. So you're right, it's important to talk about where Israel can be helpful with these countries. And Israel does a lot, uh, but certainly it needs to continue, it needs to be expanded. Um, Brazil, you mentioned, uh, David, uh, is an interesting case. Um, and this uh, gets me into the, the subject of uh, evangelical support. Uh, Brazil we're worried about now because they just had an election and Bolsonaro was voted out. So you're right. Last time they did vote no, but let's see what happens this time. We're, we're certainly worried about that. Uh, and we need to pick up other countries. We need to pick up Panama. We need to pick up Costa Rica, Dominican Republic. Guatemala has been solid. And a big part of it is the evangelical support for Israel. And Guatemala, in fact, had a 
uh, evangelical Christian president, Jimmy Morales, who made the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem. And he's also the one who um, changed their vote from abstaining on these resolutions to voting no. And it's continued now uh, year by year. Uh, so, you know, we certainly appreciate Guatemala. Uh, in terms of the, the overall voting patterns, we uh, have these uh, some Latin American countries voting no Guatemala. Honduras, again, we'll see what happens with the new government. Brazil, Colombia, there's been kind of a negative trend uh, in Latin America. In Europe, very interestingly, the traditional position had been to abstain on these resolutions because they always wanted to be seen as not voting against the Palestinians. But starting a few years ago, some countries, Germany, Hungary, Austria, Czech Republic, Greece, they started looking at this objectively and saying, this isn't contributing to peace, this isn't a good thing. And they started voting no, at least on one of the resolutions. We wanna see more European countries join them and we wanna see that uh, continuing. Um, the Pacific Islands, yes, it's true. Uh, uh, Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea have been voting well. And, and these are countries that are Christian countries uh, and Christian supporters of Israel. So the, I think the evangelical Christians around the world can certainly uh, weigh in with their governments. Uh, in Africa, certainly you have these strong communities that you alluded to and that you visited, David. Um, you have Kenya and Tanzania and uh, Uganda, Rwanda, Ghana. Um, it's important to uh, get the word out and get these um, uh, communities to understand the stakes involved and to weigh in with their governments. In terms of actually uh, looking up the voting records or getting more information, you can go to our website. It's ajiri.us. J-I-R-I dot U-S. And you'll see all the background information on these resolutions and on activity at the UN against Israel, and also a, a platform where you can look up any country in the world and see their voting record on these resolutions. And it's it's up to date. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's very helpful. And indeed, one of the comments I, I read here on our session is that actually, and this is our task, Churches in Africa and Latin America needs to be educated about Israel in this political sense and also in the, in the biblical sense, because my experience from Latin America is to them, they have enough of their own problems and Israel is very, very far away. And so they really don't pay much attention. And of course, they need to be uh, convinced first if they are to convince their uh, elected uh, officials. So this is something that I take uh, as, uh, as a goal for uh, further educating our uh, constituency. We have 91 countries where we do have some kind of representation, many of them and actually growing in Latin America and growing in Africa. David has just returned. I was in Central Africa in June and I'm going to Uganda in two weeks time. So uh, we really uh, keep our focus on those nations because it's important. And this is what we see uh, is our role to educate the church about uh, these issues. Mm -hmm. I would add that, uh, like, if you're really trying to crack the nut of Africa, it's, it's, you know, South Africa has a lot of diplomatic influence over African votes. Egypt uh, is sort of the diplomatic leader of much of the Arab world. 
Uh, and of course, I think Nigeria is very influential in West Africa. But within the African, uh, the OAU, the African Union, you have smaller subdivisions, like there's a union of East African countries that are Swahili speaking, Uganda, Kenya, uh, Tanzania, Burundi, uh, and, and there's about six or seven, I think they're trying to add Ethiopia to it. And then in the West, you have the Francophile countries that have banded together. Each are sort of a, their own little economic common market. That's what they're trying to create. And in West Africa, they have a, a common currency. It's a certain type of West African franc. And there may be a way where we could send a joint Christian-Jewish delegation to meet with some of the leaders of those, uh, you know, unions that have, you know, the West Africa, it's 15, 18 countries, I think, and East Africa, it's, it's five to, it's, I think it's up to seven countries now, that it'd probably be worth a trip to try and meet, and meet with some of those regional leaders and, and make the case. Yeah. Well, amen to all that, first of all, but um, let me just uh, say that South Africa, unfortunately, is, is a big problem right now. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's a work in progress. Uh, but South Africa kind of is a ringleader of anti-Israel activity in Africa and at the UN, uh, and also anti-American activity. There's um, mm. they're very aggressive uh, diplomatically uh, in opposing Israel. They are the leaders of the anti-Israel faction within the AU against is Israeli observer status even uh, at the AU. Um, but again, the Christian community, I think, can play a positive role there. Uh, and by the way, I don't think that because a country is Muslim that automatically, in this day and age especially, we can write them off. Mm -hmm. We have to make alliances with Muslims, uh, courageous Muslims who are reaching out to Israel. And there are more and more of them, as, as you know, and you probably interact with them. So it's important to build those alliances. Egypt, unfortunately, has not been a... a, a um, uh, a good actor in terms of Israel at the UN. And part of that dates back to the fact that uh, they signed the Camp David Accords. They were the first Arab country to make peace with Israel. So they wanted to prove to the rest of the Arab world, they felt they needed to prove to the rest of the Arab world, their bona fides against Israel. So they bash Israel more than anybody at the UN. It's changing a little bit under and we'll see uh, where this goes. Uh, but um, unfortunately at the UN, you know, their voting record is 100% negative and their rhetoric has been less than helpful. Mm. Well, there's certainly a lot of work uh, to do, but uh, it's been great to, to hear your insights and uh, also to have uh, all these uh, uh, data available, which uh, we are certainly going to, to use in, in our efforts. Any final words, Gil, before we close? Uh, I would just say first, it's it's always an honor to be with you. I appreciate what you all are doing, and let's continue this dialogue. I I really agree with you that uh, a lot can be done in terms of reaching out. I didn't know that ninety one countries now. Wow, that's great. Uh, keep it up. Get to a hundred soon, and, and go past a hundred. Uh, and certainly, we have a lot of. Uh, uh, mutual interests and, and we, we can work together on this and, and other things. I look forward to seeing you in Israel. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution, David. 
Yeah. Look, I I visited the offices of the um the East African Union in Arusha a couple years ago and met with some of the f- officials who work there. And it's quite interesting that that uh they hold a prayer meeting in those offices every day to pray for their countries and and they pray for Israel. And I just think there's some good opportunities uh, instead of trying to pick off one nation at a time to to grab several nations at a time to really tip the balance on this. It is a a a black mark on the UN and even on our own nations that we support the publication and dissemination of anti-Semitic, not just anti-Israel, but anti-Semitic materials out of the UN Secretary General uh, itself. And uh, we need to change this and turn November 29, next Tuesday, into a day that that uh, we celebrate as an important milestone in Israel's modern day rebirth. Amen. Yeah. And we are going to encourage our representatives in all those countries to to look at that date and to make a public statement or something, or to let their government know that we uh, really care. And that's uh, really a great example of a part of the calling of the ICJ. It has been written in our original mandate back in 1980, that uh, we are to make efforts to inform the world and to become effective influences on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people all around the world. So that's what we are trying to do. And it's great to have such allies like Gil and this organization. It's great to to know you, to be working with you. And uh, I'm sure this is not the last time that we've talked. So all the best and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks to all of you. Please make a point to to be in contact with uh, your government, your elected officials about treating Israel fairly at the UN. We, God, uh, we say God bless you and shalom from Jerusalem.